Since what we're going to cover this morning is really a conclusion to what we began to consider last Lord's Day, I want to walk through a, a brief recap of this prayer of the Apostle, namely verses 1 through 8, what we covered last Lord's Day. Remember that this in this prayer, Paul is preemptively addressing an issue that later he's going to have to reprove them on, and that is their abuse of the, the outpouring of God's grace among them, specifically in the, the spiritual gifts. They were poor stewards. They had gotten much, but they were not stewarding it very well. He's going to have to address that later. Here, he begins with, rather than just immediately striking at them, he begins by actually thanking God for that very grace that was at work in them. He does this with expert, spirit-given wisdom. He does it in the form of a prayer of thanksgiving. Uh, what, what, what greater uh, praise could we receive from another person than to say, before I say anything, I want to let you know that I thank God for this particular thing in you. And then now I'm going to have to address how you've maybe uh, abused it a little bit. Well, that, that, would, that's, uh, that, that meets us well. We would like to hear that. They're thanking God for something to me. What a, what a blessing. That's what he's doing here. He wants them to know that he would never disparage the work of the Holy Spirit amongst them. And we have to be careful uh, with, in, in that same regard with other people. Though we might be able to point out errors and, and uh, misuses, we need to be careful that we're not disparaging or... Uh, casting shade upon the actual work of the Spirit in a, a person. All of us are in need of grace, as we said last Lord's Day. Not only in need of grace, but in need of grace to put our grace to use. And if any of us would, would like to stand and, and, and say, well, every bit of grace that I've ever received, I've put to use perfectly in the moment just as I should have, well, you might be the one that would be better off to deliver this sermon. I think we would all say, no, I, I'm... I've failed in that area many times. And so we have to be careful in the way that we address other people. And, and that's what Paul's doing. He's doing it very, very uh, wisely with, with much tenderness and compassion. So the first thing that we noted was the general thesis of this whole paragraph. Paul is here describing a prayer of thanksgiving for the church. He's thanking God for God's obvious work of grace among them. But he's also avoiding anything that might sound like flattery. He's avoiding any kind of language that they might then capture and use to exalt themselves even more. We also noted its overall emphasis. The whole substance of Paul's prayer is God's grace which was at work in them. Then thirdly, we considered its detailed analysis. And when you begin to unpack this prayer, you find out that as Paul gives thanks for God's grace and as he emphasizes God's grace, he does so in, in, with or using the layout of history, we could say, a chronological layout, past, present, and future. And, and you could see that in the tense of the verbs. He thanks God for the grace that was given to them in Christ Jesus. He says, you were enriched. The testimony about Christ was confirmed. In other words, the Corinthian Christians had, in the past, become the recipients of God's all-sufficient grace. And Paul's thankful. But it wasn't just past grace, it's also present grace. He says that right now, presently, you are not lacking in any gift as you, right now, are waiting 
for the revealing of Christ. In other words, th throughout your, your lives as Christians and in the church as a Christian church, you have everything that you need right now. It wasn't just something that happened in the past. What happened in the past has led to a condition now where you have everything that you need. We learned there that for all of those who have come into the orbit of God's grace in Christ, we have all that we need in Him. Now, remember that God doesn't, doesn't give us duffel bags or, or storage units of grace. He doesn't give all of this abundance of grace and He says, now just keep it and hold on to it and, and pull it out as you need it. There is all sufficiency in God and in Christ we have all that we need. But very often God gives that right as we need it. Right in the moment is when He gives the grace. But still yet, we have everything that we need. We, we don't need to despair. I often think of the great, great trials like you read of men in history who have stood trial for their faith or have even walked to the, the stake, been burned at the stake or, or put to death for their faith. And we like to think, well, if that was me, I would do the same thing. I mean, I'm bold in my faith and, and I'm strong. But if we, if we get down to it, we don't, we don't even have you know, easy conversations with people at the store or, or even family members that we've known our entire lives. We, 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 we kind of clam up. But we think, well, if, if I were in that condition, well, then I would all of a sudden my spiritual muscles would puff up and I would show how strong that I really am. Um, it, it, there, there's, if we put those two things together, we learn there really is probably an incongruity in the way that we think. But... If we are Christ's, when that moment comes, if that moment comes, He will give the grace. He will give what is needed. And if you read the story of martyrs, most of them, um, in, in those hours and in those moments, they exemplify a boldness that was not character, uh, characteristic of them in other times and other places. Um, God gives the grace, and that's where we have to always keep our eyes on Him. So they had present grace, and we also see that he references what we could call future grace in, in a, a future tense verb. Christ will sustain you to the end. And that's that the phrase will sustain. That's ongoing and future. Paul is sure that Christ will until the end sustain these saints by His grace. And what I said was in past grace and in present grace, the foundation is laid for ongoing future grace. We have a hope there that will sustain us until the last day and in the last day and even into the future. These saints had received this grace. For all of that, Paul says, I'm thankful. I'm grateful for the work of God in you. And I close by saying this. Paul's optimism and the way that he's approaching this in kindness, very different than the way he addresses, say, the Galatians. He approaches it very tenderly. He's very kind. He is hopeful for them. All of that, the, the, the way that he can do that or the reason that he can approach them in that way is not because he says, you know, I know the Corinthians and they are good, hearty, strong people. And when they read my letter and they see how, how firmly I address the issues, they'll, they'll grab a hold of themselves by their bootstraps or by the scruff of their own necks, and they'll carry themselves through to the end. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, you have everything that you need in you, and therefore I'm confident. He's saying, no, you have everything you need in Christ, and therefore I'm confident. 
He roots his confidence in what I referred to as the two bookends of this paragraph. Verse 4, he said, I give thanks to my God. And then in verse 9, he says, God is faithful. Now, when you're just reading it, it kind of it might flow kind of strangely that all of a sudden at the end, in the last verse, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son. Remember, there weren't verse numbers when it, this was originally penned. This was all one paragraph. He assumes you're going to read, I'm thankful to God for all that He's done. I'm hopeful to God for all that He will do. God is faithful. That's, that's, he's, he's hitting them with that at the end of this, this opening uh, prayer. And so that's where I want to pick up today in verse 9. In that, that final verse of this paragraph. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In the final verse of this introduction, Paul brings everything that he said back to the foundation. And he's rooting everything that he said in the nature of God and the nature of salvation. That's what it comes down to. The nature of God and the nature of salvation. We see the nature of God in the phrase, God is faithful. Then we see the nature of salvation in the phrase, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I, what, what, I'm, what I'm arguing is that is a reference to the nature of God and the nature of our salvation. And that is the order of what Paul says in the verse. A lot of times in Greek, words are all over the place and you have to look at word tenses and, and things to figure out how the sentence actually flows. In this sentence, this is how it flows. Nature of God, God is faithful. Nature of salvation, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son. That's how it reads. But if you pay attention to the language, even in our English translations, you'll see that Paul is still speaking within a significantly, I believe it's significant, a significantly chronological framework. He says, God is faithful, present tense. And he says, by whom you were called. That's in the past. In other words, in the past action of God in salvation, that is their being called into the fellowship of His Son, that has produced these clear and obvious fruits of grace in them. And that reality is bolstered up and strengthened by the nature of God Himself who is presently faithful. You were called, and I know that because I see all of these graces, you have the grace, you have everything you need, and you will sustain, you will always have what you need. Christ will sustain you because God is presently right now faithful. If God had saved them in the past, and this would go for us as well, if God had saved them or you in the past, but He wasn't faithful, then there, there wouldn't be any confidence that their grace would grow or flourish or make it to the last day or make it into eternity. Well, yeah, he, something happened to me back then, but well, I mean, I don't know where we're going from here if God were gracious but not faithful. Now, if God were faithful but not gracious, He had no intention to dispense His grace upon men in salvation, well, then His faithfulness would just be an absolute terror to every one of us. God is faithful, faithful to His justice, faithful to His righteousness, faithful to Himself. 
And that would only remind us constantly of what is a certain damnation. Thankfully, the God of the Bible is not a God whose faithfulness blots out His willingness to dispense of His grace. Nor does His dispensation of His grace, His willingness to save, have to nudge out His faithfulness. No, it's both. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son. Paul says that. God is faithful and He called you. Or as it's stated elsewhere, He who called you is faithful. The nature of God, God is faithful. The nature of salvation, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son. But again, chronologically, you were called in the past if you're a Christian. And you have confidence now because God is now continuing to be faithful. And so I want to break up the verse in that way. So in, according to the chronolo- chronology of Paul's verbs, not the way we read it. it was, I'm going to do it backwards. We'll consider first the nature of salvation, the latter part of the verse. You were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then the second heading will be the nature of God. God is faithful. The sermon has essentially two parts. As I was going through my notes this morning, I realized this feels almost like two sermons because it's two major ideas that are, that are tethered together. And it's very important that they're tethered together. So that's what we'll do. The nature of salvation, the nature of God. This was Paul's confidence. This was to be the confidence of the saints in Corinth. This should be all of our confidence. The nature of salvation, if you're a Christian, and also the nature of God. So number one, the nature of salvation. The nature of salvation. Again, I'm arguing that in the phrase, you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm arguing that in that phrase is the nature or the distilled essence of salvation itself. For them and for us to be called into the fellowship of God's Son, that is salvation. That is the nature of it in its in its distilled essence. And, and I'm using the word nature as synonymous with essence. Or we, we could even say uh, subsistence. The most basic fundamental being of a thing. The, the seed or the heart, the soul of salvation is this. You were called into the fellowship of His Son. If we wanted to put it in the form of a question, we might ask, what is Christian salvation? Every religion in the world, I'm assuming because people buy into them, every religion is offering some kind of a salvation. All all men recognize the state that I'm in, the, the pathway that I'm heading is not great. So I need some other system, something to subscribe to that gives me hope that I will not always be exactly like I am now. Maybe we'll... Maybe we'll attain to nirvana or maybe when we get into the presence of Allah, He will let us into heaven or maybe as the Jews expect someday, the Messiah will return and and elevate us above all of the, the nations. Every religion in the world is offering something that they would put under the category of salvation. The question is, what makes Christianity different? What is Christian salvation? We, we talk about... Um, this all the time, and we usually use pretty terse statements like, uh, when I was saved, when I got saved, back before I was saved, but then after I got saved, when were you saved? That's the way we put it. But if you were to ask people in a conversation, what is salvation? 
What is Christian salvation? What are, we, what are we being saved from? What are we being saved to? What are we getting out of? What is it? With regard to salvation, many Christians are not able to see below the surface or the personal benefits of their salvation in order to trace it down to its deepest roots. What makes this thing work? They might say good things, they might say correct things, they might say biblically accurate things, but somebody who is a thinker will tear down everything that they're saying very easily. If you ask them, what is salvation? They might say, well, it's forgiveness of sins. That's true, that's biblical, that's a part of salvation. But a thinker might come back and say, how in the world can this God who you say is so righteous just forgive sins? That doesn't sound righteous at all. There has to be something underlying the forgiveness. They might say, well, God has shown me mercy. Well, that's, that's biblical. I've been delivered from the, the penalty of sin, delivered from hell, and I have a hope of heaven. But how? How can that be? What makes this thing work? Salvation in the biblical sense, that is according to the teaching of the Bible, is far more than just those individual benefits that come from what we would call biblical salvation. We have to ask, how do these benefits come to me? How, where do these benefits come from? By what mode or means do they become mine? And how can this God remain God and yet forgive me, have mercy on me? Say, I won't send you to hell. I'll let you come into heaven. This righteous God, I'm going to enter into His presence. How can that possibly be? There has to be something deeper. And the answer is found in the nature of true salvation. Paul says, By whom you were called. And this is a reference. I hope that you're learning that when you see that language that you can at least entertain the idea that we might be talking about the effectual call. And that's what he's talking about here. The effectual call of God. When he says, by whom, that's a reference to the God who is faithful. By whom you were called. This is a reference to that summons that comes from God to sinners that effectually brings them into the sphere of His saving graces. It brings along with it the work of regeneration. Our confession describes it this way. Effectual call. Those whom God hath predestined unto life, He is pleased in His appointed and accepted time effectually to call by His Word and Spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by His almighty power, determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by His grace. This is the the content of what we call the effectual call. He calls us by His Word and Spirit. He calls us out of sin and death. He calls us to grace and salvation. He enlightens our minds. He gives us a new heart with a renewed will. That's regeneration. And He draws us to Christ. And all of this is effectual. In other words, it, it never don't work. Or 
more appropriately, it always works. It does exactly what it is, is meant to do. It is, a, it is a call, but the call forces or, or creates the very thing that it commands. Now, we move forward and we see that this call is a call into fellowship. We are called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And that word fellowship is the word koinonia. We've seen it several times recently. It could be translated participation or communion. We've been called into the participation of the Son of God, the fellowship, the communion of the Son of God. And this is referring to our union with Christ, which we've covered in, in a lot of detail. You might say, why, does he, why do you keep talking about it? Union with Christ. This is salvation. We have to understand this is what Christian salvation is. Union with Christ where we become recipients of all His achievements and rewards. So His life becomes ours. His death becomes ours. The repercussions of a perfect life become ours. The, the consequences of a punitive death become ours. His resurrection and His ascension become ours. In other words, all of the grace and salvation or grace in salvation that comes to us, it comes to us because we have come into this union with Christ. It's been defined, one, one commentator de describing this phrase refers to it as, quote, communal participation in the sonship of Jesus Christ where we become shareholders in Christ. And one English translation actually translates it, He who called you to share in the life of His Son. By the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, that is the Spirit of Christ, Christ's achievements are applied to our condition. So His active and passive obedience are imputed to us. They, they are put in the place of our consistent non-obedience, our, our consistent disobedience. And uh, His suffering is put in the place of where we ought to suffer. We are disobedient and we ought to suffer. He was obedient and He suffered. What He did is credited to us because we've come into union with Him. Everything that He's done, we get it. His death and resurrection are worked in us by the Spirit. We talked about this last week. His, his death, we say, I've, I've sinned. The wages of sin is death. I should die. Well, He died. That death is given to me. So when, if God looks at my record where it says, you have sinned, you should die, and He traces His finger over, it's already happened. This, this, this record says a death has already taken place. So, so there, there is no more repercussions for the sins of this one. His death, is, his death becomes ours. His, his resurrection power is worked in us so that we walk in newness of life. We become, quote, shareholders in His cross and resurrection. If you're a, a shareholder in a, a, a large company, 
you're probably not going to go to all the business meetings. They're probably not going to call you and ask you a whole lot of opinions on stuff, especially if it's stock market type stuff. Um, but if the business does well, you reap the rewards. If the business does bad, well, then you reap the consequences. You're a shareholder. This is the, the idea here. I was not there when Christ suffered and died. I was not there when Christ lived his life. I was not there when Christ was raised from the dead. But through union with Christ, I become a shareholder so that everything that he has accomplished becomes mine. As it went well with him, I receive the benefits. This is the fellowship of Christ. Now what does this mean for our salvation? It means that salvation in the biblical sense is not just getting those certain benefits like forgiveness of sins and heaven to come especially if we might think of them as detached from a person. Salvation in the biblical sense is being joined to a person. It is entering into, by the Holy Spirit, a position before God that is rightfully and absolutely owned by Christ alone. And yet because of this union, we stand in that same position. I didn't live the perfect life. Christ did. I didn't die the the punitive death. Christ did. That position before God that He has now resurrected and ascended, that is really only rightly, absolutely His place. But through union with Him, I can stand there and even do spiritually right now, seated in the heavens with Him, stand in that position with Him. As He stands there, we we just read all those names and I was thinking of how, how God numbers every one of His people, every one of, of His elect. He's, he's got the record of their names. He knows the, the details. And as Christ stands there in the presence of God now, having lived and died and having been raised from the dead, as He stands there, He stands there in the place of and representing every one of the elect of God by name. That, that's our position right now. In the garden, mankind was cut off from God. Through union with Christ, we're engrafted back in. You'll often hear Jonah 2.9 used as a succinct defense for uh, sovereign grace theology. Salvation is of the Lord or from the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. One point Calvinism. Salvation is of the Lord, people have said. Well, that, that passage is not merely saying that the saving work is God's, that God alone accomplishes the work of salvation. It does mean that for sure. It means more than that, though. It says salvation. It doesn't just say salvation is God's doing. Salvation is of the Lord, of His being, of who He is. Salvation, we could say, and the Lord are one. It is Him to get Him is to get salvation. To have Him come to us, that is salvation. As we've noted several times recently, when we speak of grace, we're talking about God's giving of Himself to us by His Spirit. All of salvation is that way. All of salvation is God bringing us to Himself and giving Himself to us. It's a coming together of of sinners and God through Christ. And again, He does this through His Son. Grace comes through and because of Christ. Forgiveness of sins. How can you be forgiven of your sins? Well, the penalty for my sins has been paid. Therefore, I can be pardoned because 
Christ has taken that upon Himself. Justification and sanctification come to us because we're united with Christ. Christ died and He was raised for our justification. In other words, the resurrection of Christ was His justification. That's how God was declaring Him free, innocent, clear of all of the imputed sins that had been laid upon Him. He dealt with them. And because Christ was justified, I can stand justified in God's presence. You see, it's all in Him. Salvation is not simply receiving the benefits, but the benefactor. This is the very essence of salvation, the nature of salvation. And this is the bedrock of of everything else Paul said. Paul was thankful for grace, grace that, that had enriched them, grace that came as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among them, grace that would sustain them. But all of this grace is theirs because they had been called into the fellowship of Christ. He who is full of grace and truth, from whom we receive grace upon grace. It's all Him. Whether it's past grace, present grace, or future grace, it all flows to us as we are joined to Christ. He is the vine. We are the branches. Branches on trees don't send down their own roots to get their own nutrients. No, they get the same life, the same nutrients from the trunk. It comes because the branch is joined to the tree, to the vine. He is the vine. We are the branches. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. But in Him, we have His very life flowing through us. And Paul can be thankful here. He's hopeful because they were joined to Christ. Not because they were strong. Because they're joined to Him. If a, a large tree branch falls out of a tree, you don't say, well, I think that branch will be fine. I mean, it's big. It's, it's heavy, it's sturdy, I think it'll grow. When spring comes, there's not going to be any leaves on that branch. It's not because of its size or its strength. Its life was from the tree. It's the same with, with these saints and with us. There can be hope in us, confidence in us, and we can have confidence in others because they've been joined to Christ. It's Him. We're, we're ultimately, and we'll see in a minute, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, we're ultimately confident in God and we're confident in Christ. Going beyond... This truth, I don't think it's by accident that Paul refers to their being called into the fellowship, not simply the fellowship of Christ, but into the fellowship of His Son. So Christ is being considered here as He is the Son of God. Who is more likely to be, or who is God more likely to be favorably disposed to than His Son? Jesus Christ. There's none. Who does the Father love more than the Son? Who is more precious to the Father than His Son? None. What's Paul saying? You've been called into the fellowship of the Son. You've been united to the eternal Son, the eternally beloved of the Father. And that is the very nature or essence of salvation. Again, in the fall, we're cut off from the life of God, but in Christ, we're reunited to God by the life of Christ in us. We've been joined to the very Son of God's love. We'll see more about that in a minute. So that's the nature of salvation. That's why He's confident. You've been united to Christ. Number two, the nature of God. The nature of God. All that we have just heard would lead us 
leave us moderately wishful at best if God were not faithful. Now, it's interesting that even as we hear about union with Christ, I haven't even gotten to the faithfulness of God part yet, but, but we're already either verbally or in our hearts, we're saying, Amen, Amen, this is good. This is good. We are, we are already presupposing the faithfulness of God as we hear what He's done in salvation because we know this to be the case, but let's study it anyway. God is faithful is the way that the verse 9 begins. It, we could literally read it, faithful the God. In the New Testament, God, all, as far as I know, almost always has a definite article before it. The God, it's always the God. Um, if a Jehovah's Witness gets out their Bible and it says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was a God, it, it actually reads, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was the God. There's only one God. It, it always has that. But that's how this would read. Faithful, the God. The first word being faithful shows us that's the emphasis here. Paul comes in at the end and just hits them hard with faithful. That's what he's, that's what he's saying. Everything that proceeds, all the grace of salvation, comes from our being united to Christ. And union to Christ is the work of God, by whom you were called. What kind of a God is He? He's faithful. Everything, all that we know of salvation, all that we know of grace, grows out of the soil of His faithfulness. We'll see in, in verse 30 of this chapter, because of Him you were in Christ Jesus, or literally, of Him you are in Christ Jesus. Out of God... You are united to His Son. It's all of God and all of union with Christ. We have communion with God through union with Christ. We have union with Christ because of God and His effectual call. And the blessings and the hope of this union is founded on the fact that God is faithful. Paul says, you were called by the God who is faithful. Now, faithful does, here does not mean full of faith. It means that He is worthy of our faith. Synonyms would be trustworthy or reliable or dependable. So then God is faithful. God is trustworthy. God is dependable. God is reliable. But when we talk about the faithfulness of God and we define it in those ways like I just did, He's worthy of our faith. He's worthy of our trust. He's able for us to depend on Him. We're, it's not wrong, but we're kind of defining or, or discussing this attribute of God really based on the application of it to us. It, we're, what we're saying is there's something in God that makes Him worthy of our trust, worthy to be uh, depended upon, worthy to be relied upon. So I think we could actually define the faithfulness of God a little bit deeper. We might ask, what is it in God that makes Him worthy of our trust? What is it in God that makes Him able to be relied upon? There are several angles from which we can get to a more fundamental understanding of God's faithfulness. Several ways that we associate terms like faithfulness, trustworthy, dependable. For example, enduring. We might say something is faithful. It's worthy to be trusted. It's worthy to be relied upon because it has endured. It's constant. It's not fickle. If you've got an old truck that's cranked on the first turn every day for 30 years, when you go outside in the morning, whether you say it or not, you're going to say, this is a 
faithful truck. Well, why? Because it's endured this long. I have no reason not to put my trust in it. See, it's enduring, and this is true of God. Isaiah 40, 28 says, The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. In other words, He's everlastingly enduring. Therefore, He's faithful. See, you see how we're doing that. What, what is the foundation of this faithfulness in God? We might say something is faithful because it's adequate for the task. It doesn't fail to do what it was designed to do. Some of you men have tools like this. You, 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 you might have over here five things that they'll get this job done. But then over here, you've got the one tool that's designed to get that job done. And it always does it perfectly. These over here, they might do it from time to time. But this thing here, it always gets the job done. It is adequate. And so you would say, that, that tool right there, it's faithful. These others, meh, they might do it. That one right there, it's worthy of my trust every time. It always accomplishes the task. It's adequate. Or we might say something is faithful because it's comprehensiveness. It comprehensively is effective or, or, or is comprehensive in its effectiveness. It never comes short of the task, a lawnmower that never misses a blade of grass. You'd say, that thing's dependable. It's comprehensive. It doesn't miss anything. You can always depend on it. We might say that something is faithful because it firmly adheres to the truth or is right according to a standard. You, you order a product online. You get it. You try it out. You, you leave a review. It works exactly as it is. You know, it does exactly what it said it would do. Everything that it says here, it does that. It's right according to the set standard. I would recommend. Or we might say that a person is faithful because they stick meticulously to an agreement. They always do what they say they'll do and therefore they are trustworthy. They are faithful. You can trust them. If, they, if that man said he'll do it, he'll do it. A lot of us men, we miss out on the opportunity to show that we're actually faithful because we never commit to anything. Well, I don't know if I, if I have time. Well, I might get to it. I might, well, I might be able to do this. We never commit. Now, if, we, if, you, if you show up, well, well, look at this guy. But if he doesn't, then you're left wondering, is he actually faithful or not? I don't know because he never actually commits. But when somebody always commits and they're always there, we say, that guy is faithful. If he said he's going to be there, he'll be there. Sticking to an agreement. Something or someone is faithful, worthy to be trusted or reliable or dependable because of that more fundamental trait that we could sum up in one word, true. True. True to the established standard. True to the task at hand. True to the end without fail. True to one's word no matter what. Now, we could describe something, or uh, we could use another word that we don't use very often called veracity. The veracity of God. Veracity means habitual observance of the truth. But when we, if we just said truthful, we typically only think of they always tell the truth. And, and God does always tell the truth. But there's more to veracity than that. It's not that God simply tells the truth. It's that God is true. Period. He is true. And because He's true in all of these various areas, He's faithful. He's true to the established standard, which is Himself. He's true to the task at hand. He's true to the end without fail. He's true to His Word no matter what. 
God is adequate. He never fails to accomplish the task. God is comprehensive. He never comes short of the requirement. God is right by the standard which is Himself. There's no incongruity in God. Nothing off off kilter in who He is. He always sticks unwaveringly to His Word. And because these things are true of God, therefore He's faithful. He's, He's worthy to be depended upon. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Right up there with attributes like holiness and love, there's probably no other trait that shines through more conspicuously in the pages of Scripture than God's faithfulness. The whole Bible screams the faithfulness of God. It's clearly stated many times. We just read Deuteronomy 7, 9. The Lord your God is God, the faithful God. Lamentations 3, 24. Great is your faithfulness. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. He who calls you is faithful. 2 Timothy 2, 13. He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Beyond that, the Spirit-inspired authors of Scripture illustrate God's faithfulness in many ways with regard to the magnitude of God's faithfulness. Psalm 36, 5 says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. His faithfulness. Describe it according to magnitude. It's higher than we can reach. It's higher than we can comprehend. It's always there. We see them, but they're high. That's God's faithfulness. With regard to God's strength, to accomplish all His holy will. Psalm 89.8 says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. He's strong, therefore He always accomplishes, therefore He is faithful. He's surrounded, wrapped in faithfulness. With regard to the longevity of God's faithfulness, Psalm 119.90 says, Your faithfulness endures to all generations. John Calvin says, what he begins, he prosecutes to the end. Now that sounds pretty basic, right? But how many times do we start things and not finish them? Not with God. Whatever he begins, he brings it to its end. That's faithfulness. It's like a steam engine. Once it starts to turn, it starts pulling. And it might not seem like it's going very fast, but try to stop it. It's going to be very hard because it's faithful. It's just enduring. It's chugging along, we say. God can't be stopped. Once He begins to prosecute, once He begins to move, it doesn't stop. It might not seem fast to us. It might seem really slow, but you can't stop Him. He just pulls and pulls and pulls. God is faithful to the truth. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that He should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? He always does what he says he's going to do. With regard to his strong dependability, Isaiah 44 says, Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. A, A rock is a picture of a dependable thing, a trustworthy thing. Build your house upon the rock. You can trust it not to give way. God says there's no one else. Like me. He's the only faithful one. 
He even says in Psalm 89, 33, I will not be false to my faithfulness. That's a way of saying, I will be faithful to my faithfulness. He is faithful in being faithful. Even the faithfulness of God is faithful. Now, men will present themselves as faithful, as, as worthy to be dependent upon. You can trust in me. But very often, we will leave the discovery of our faithfulness up to some, something very vague or some kind of claim that nobody really even cares to substantiate. And so it's just, well, he may be faithful, maybe not. We, we don't really know. Not with God. God presents claims to faithfulness And then He also gives clear, observable, verifiable evidence showing His faithfulness. Isaiah 41, 26, He says, Who declared it from the beginning that we might know? And beforehand, that we might say, He is right. Here we learn that God declared the end from the beginning. Then He told us He declared the end from the beginning. Then He shows us that He has accomplished the things which He has declared. All of that so that we are forced to say, yep, it's true. He's faithful. We can't get away from it. After the flood, God promises clear signs proving Himself. This would be easy to to falsify or or easy to, to prove false. If we wanted to, He said, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Prove that he's unfaithful. All you have to do is say, nope, this this didn't happen. But has this not been our experience? Has this not been the experience of every man, all men, in all places, in all times? Yes. Seed time, harvest. Cold, heat. Summer, winter. Day, night. God literally writes His faithfulness in the sky. For everyone to see, to test, to prove, to verify. It is as if God says, I dare you to find one place of unfaithfulness. I'll put it before the eyes of all men. He he stands before all men saying, show me where I have been unfaithful. And no one can answer a word because He's faithful. God manifests His faithfulness in many ways like we've seen. He's faithful to His Word. Isaiah 48.3 says, The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them, then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. In other words, He says what He'll do, then He does what He says. He's faithful to His Word. True to His Word to the end, without fail, no matter what. God is always faithful to His Word. He says in Isaiah 55.11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. His Word is always comprehensively true to the task, never failing or coming short. Never. God's Word. He's faithful to His Word. We see this in His covenantal dealings as well. God promised, Adam, in the day that you eat of it, you shall shall surely die. Anybody ever seen Adam? No, he's dead. It happened. He dealt with Adam as a federal head representing all of the human race so that when Adam fell into sin, all of the human race would fall into sin with him. You ever met somebody that wasn't a sinner? Nope. He's faithful. It happened exactly like he said. He promised Noah that the earth would continue 
Has he flooded it yet? Nope. He promised Abraham a numerous seed. Do we not still have Jews walking the earth to this very day? He promised the Messiah. Did Christ not come? He promised Israel that they would be punished. Did Jerusalem not get destroyed in 70 A.D.? History tells us it did. Everything that He said, everything that He says comes to pass. He's faithful to His Word. His saying is His doing. He is true and therefore faithful. I had to write this in in my notes this morning. As some of you know, today is the 11-year anniversary of the first worship service we ever had as a church. So we can stand now after 11 years and say God is faithful. God is faithful. I can tell you what, He's not faithful to our creativity. He's not faithful to uh, programs or pragmatism or worldly practices. All we can say is He's been faithful to this book right here. This is all we've done. We've offered nothing but this. And He's been faithful because He's faithful to His Word. Eleven years doesn't seem like a long time, but when we started, it was, it was uh, interesting. He's been faithful. He's also faithful in all of His works. Peter refers to Him as the faithful Creator, 1 Peter 4.19. Everything in creation tells us of His faithfulness. Joshua 23.14, Joshua said, Not one word has failed of all the good things the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. In all of His works, He's faithful. Did the prophets not say that it was necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter into His glory? And did the Christ not come and live and die and ascend into the heavens? Did they not see Him go up into the clouds? It happened just as they said. He's faithful in all of His works. Of course, there's no greater revelation of God's faithfulness in His work than in the incarnate Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 3.6 says that Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Christ was faithful to come as it was written, Hebrews 10.7, Behold, I come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Christ was faithful to say only what the Father gave Him to say, John 12, 49 and 50. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has Himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. He was faithful. I said only what I was told to say. Christ was faithful to do only as the Father commanded Him. John 14, 31, I do as the Father commanded me. Think about this. This is important. The Father's relationship to the Son, the Son's faithfulness to the Father. Think about it. Christ was faithful to His Father's charge even unto death. What does He say? I have authority to lay down my life and authority to take up again. This charge, this commission I have received from my Father. John 19.30, when He had received sour wine, He said, It is finished. The charge has been executed. Everything the Father gave me to do is done. The faithful Son. The Father has never been more pleased than when looking upon His Son who was so faithful to execute every detail of the eternal plan of redemption. And there was never a Son who was more faithful to His Father than Jesus Christ. Even from childhood, He said, Didn't you know I have to be about my Father's business? I've got, I've got work here. I've got to be faithful to somebody else. God the Father had... None more dependable, more trustworthy, more capable, more steadfast than His Son. Christ was charged with vindicating His Father's glory and justice. 
And that's what he did. Romans 3, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, the Father commissioned the Son. He gave Him this responsibility. I'm sending you to go and to vindicate my righteousness, to vindicate my justice because generations of sinners have been welcomed into paradise. That makes me look unjust. It makes me look like I don't punish sins. Go and vindicate my righteousness. And what does the Son do? He comes and He vindicates His Father charged with the very reputation of God and He is faithful. Christ is faithful to His church. Matthew 28, 20, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Has every generation of saints not borne witness to Christ's nearness to them in every place, in every time? In the Revelation, He is called faithful and true. Faithful because He's true. And He's also called the true witness. In other words, we can confidently trust on Christ's revelation of God to be true to the standard. There's no incongruity between what we see in Jesus Christ and who God is. None. No difference. He is God. I and the Father are one. He's the true witness. Everything that we see Christ doing, that's a revelation of God. He's true. You want to know God? Look at Christ. That He's a faithful witness. God is faithful. Again, it might be said that this summarizes the whole Bible. God is faithful. Now, let's put these two things together and we see why Paul is so confident about the saints in Corinth. Why we could be confident. The nature of salvation, we've been united to the Son of God. The nature of God, He is faithful. And nowhere do we see His faithfulness more than in Christ. Christ is the one to whom we are united. So God is faithful. Christ is faithful. The Father is faithful to the Son. The Son is faithful to the Father. And then here we are by His Spirit brought into union with the Son. That's what Paul's saying. God is faithful. The Father, eternally faithful to the Son. The Son, eternally faithful to the Father. And God has called you into union with His Son. We have been snatched or caught up, bound up in this, this relationship between the Father and the Son where they, they both look at one another as the, as the epitome of faithfulness, of trueness. And yet here we come and we're caught up in that by the indwelling Holy Spirit. There is no more sure foundation of our past grace, present grace, or future grace than this. That the very God who is eternally faithful to His own faithfulness and faithful to His Son has joined you to that Son who was perfectly faithful to His Father. Ultimately, God's faithfulness to us is from His faithfulness to His Son. We have to understand that. The essence of salvation. We've been brought into union with the Son. The Father's faithfulness to the Son and vice versa in the covenant of redemption. 
necessarily leads to their faithfulness to us in the covenant of grace. The Holy and Righteous Father and the eternally blessed Son of His bosom would just as soon agree to go their separate ways than you could fall out of His grace or His grace fail to bring forth fruit unto consummation. The Father and the Son, do you foresee that happening? The Father and the Son saying, look, we've we got to come to an agreement. We've got to go our separate ways. Amicably, we, we, we just... No, we, they can't because they're one in essence. This is why we confess which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our comfortable dependence on Him. Why can we depend on Him? Because He's faithful. The doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of God's faithfulness. In other words, because of who He is, He's faithful. And because He is faithful, we can comfortably depend upon Him. We can rest in Him. So then, in closing, would you be confident? Would you be hopeful? Would you come to a comfortable assurance of grace and salvation? There is an aspect of assurance where we examine the evidences of grace. But even that is built on what we've seen here, who God is. Why would we examine grace? Oh yeah, God's faithful. He always brings forth fruit. Therefore, if I see fruit, I have grace. But we don't start there. We, we trace it back. If you would be confident, if you would be hopeful, if you would have an assurance of grace and salvation, then take a peek into the Holy Trinity. Consider the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Peer long into the faithfulness of God in every generation. Where has He been unfaithful? Where has He said, well, I might, I might give these evidences of grace, but I'm not going to save that one. I'm just going to trick them. I'm going to let them see the manifestations of my work in them. And then in the end, I'll say, ha ha, I gotcha. You thought you were saved. He doesn't do that. He says... I give these things. If these things are yours, you're mine. And we can trust that because He's faithful. Try Him with yourself. I realize that sounds perhaps dangerously close to you know, Rick Warren's garbage about you know, give, give, give Jesus a try for 30 days and if you don't like it, you can get a refund or something. That's not what I mean by try Him with yourself. What I mean is don't just say God's faithful, but actually bring your soul to dependency upon God. That, that's a work you have to do in yourself. You have to labor internally, mentally, and in your heart to pry your fingers off of yourself, of all creaturely comforts and self-dependence, as the old writers would say, and just roll yourself over on God and say, I'm not trusting anything else. I'm laying on you. If you can't save me, nobody can save me, so then all would be futile. This is the only rock. Therefore, I'm giving myself to this and trust and rely and depend. Resolve. Jonathan Edward made resolutions, right? Resolve. I'm not going to trust in anything else. I'm not going to let the fact that I'm clearly sinful change the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I'm just going to trust in Him. I look in the mirror. I'm a sinner. I'm trusting in Him. You see, we have to do that heart 
work, that labor of studying the God who is faithful, coming to the Scriptures, seeing that He is faithful. And then, in a sense, we do have to grab our own soul by the scruff of the neck and throw ourselves upon Him. We don't have anywhere else to go. If you come through the Son, in whom He is well pleased, you can have every confidence that God is well pleased in you. So go back to the Gospels and read it. Did He not say twice, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Have you been called into the fellowship of His Son? Therefore, God's pleasure in His Son pours off of Him onto you. And you get that. That declaration is ours in Christ. My beloved son, my beloved daughter, I'm, I am pleased. Live in that fellowship. Make use of the blessings of that fellowship. And there will be confidence there. God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So as we come to the Lord's table, I just want to uh, point out again the faithfulness of God. Nowhere is the faithfulness of God displayed more clearly than in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the culmination. The men spoke yesterday about the cross, the culmination of all of God's attributes, the The gospel of Jesus Christ is the culmination of everything that God is and has revealed Himself uh, to us uh, in. And I want to show you that as we come to the table. Of course, our attention needs to be on Christ crucified. So in Exodus 34, God describes Himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. We see here that God is a God who forgives sin. And at the same time, He's a God who by no means clears the guilty. So we wonder, how can God be faithful to both of those things? How can both of those be upheld? And the answer is in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, in, in the cross and in Christ... God shows how He is the one who forgives and yet doesn't clear the guilty. How does He do that? Well, He takes the sins of the guilty ones and He lays them on His Son and then He crushes Him. He's he's not clearing the guilty. He's executing judgment. And yet, He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. The iniquities of us all were laid upon Him on the cross. That's what's happening in the cross. God is showing His faithfulness to Himself. I'll read from Luke's Gospel. He took the bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the breaking of the bread, we are reminded of the breaking of Christ's body for us. And so here see Christ for you, broken, His body given for us, life for us, sustenance through faith. We're also reminded, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. As the elements are distributed, make a confession of sins, go to the cross as we come to the, the table and the bread and the wine. Work, do the mental work of keeping your attention fixed on Christ. Look past the elements to Him and then we'll come to the Lord's table together.